May that be our prayer. You may have all the world. Give Jesus. Turn with me now to Matthew chapter 5. You might be wondering why or how did I pick this passage? Well, as you know, one of the classes that I'm teaching to men in the Dominican Republic and Haiti is a class on the Gospels. And as we study the Gospels, we study uh, Jesus. And Jesus was the greatest teacher there ever was. And so we look at some of the, the preaching and teaching ministry of Jesus. And we're going through the Sermon on the Mount right now. And a couple of weeks ago, we went through this beatitude. And it allowed me to think afresh, to think about some of the things here, to speak to my own heart. And so I decided that we would look at this beatitude this morning. I'll begin by making some um, comments concerning the historical context and the setting for the Sermon on the Mount. And then I'll make a few observations concerning the Beatitudes in general. And then we'll look at verse 8 and the Beatitude we're looking at this morning, and then hopefully I'll wrap it all up with some concluding remarks at the end. Now, just a, a word here. Um, I'm, there's only so much, really, to be said in a sermon like this about the beatitude, it can be stated very quickly, very succinctly. This is what it means. Here's a couple of passages to support what I'm saying and then to draw out some application from it. That doesn't take a lot of time. So as I talk about the historical context and the setting and the beatitudes, don't worry, don't get nervous. You know, you might be thinking, I hope he gets to the sermon soon. <laughs> but it's all a part of the sermon. And in fact, I think that the historical context and the setting are important, vitally important, if we are to understand the Beatitudes. Now, I did teach this three years ago. You may remember during COVID, I sat in the back room and taught a series on the on the Beatitudes, no one in the room but Kurt. And so I said some of these things then. If you remember those things or if you've watched it since then, you'll, you'll hear some of the same things, but hopefully uh, fleshed out a little bit better. So let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll read the passage, and I'll begin. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Father, I pray that the Spirit of God would be working in the Word of God today. If it depends on me and my flesh, it will fail. We need your help. We depend upon your help this morning. We depend upon your Spirit speaking to us out of your Word. And I pray that you would add your blessing to your Word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So, first of all, we have to think about the overall historical context for the Sermon on the Mount and something about the setting. Now, all of this can be drawn out in verses 1 and 2. And so that's what I'm going to do. 
we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. There are five statements here. Matthew tells us five things. Seeing the crowds, number one. He went up on the mountain, number two. He went and sat down, number three. His disciples came to him, number four. And he opened his mouth and taught them, number five. And we'll use those to talk about the historical context and the setting for the Sermon on the Mount. So first of all, seeing the crowds. Now, let me, let me just say that Matthew is very careful. Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, doesn't he? These are not throwaway words. These are not throwaway thoughts. We shouldn't read them and say, well, that doesn't mean anything. Sure, he saw the crowds. But there's more to it than that. Seeing the crowds, what does that mean? He's going to do something seeing the crowds. Why are there crowds? Now, the word here in the Greek is mega. This is a mega crowd. We know what mega is, right? Huge. Well, what kind of crowds? Well, you just have to go back to chapter 4. We won't turn there, but let me just remind you, chapter 4 begins with the temptation of Jesus. He comes out of that temptation, he goes to Capernaum, it tells us that he's, he's at home there in Capernaum, and then from there he goes out and begins to preach the kingdom of God and repentance. As he goes preaching, he's doing something else. He's performing miracles. And it tells us that he's healing all kinds of people of all kinds of diseases, of sicknesses. He's casting out demons. Not just a few people in a few places. It says he went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all of the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics. He healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, from beyond Jordan. Now, you, you got that picture in your mind? You have the Sea of Galilee. You have Galilee. You have Syria. You have Galilee. You have Decapolis. You have, you know, Transjordan, beyond the Jordan. The whole region... They were all bringing people to Jesus. We're not talking about 10 or 15 people here. We're probably talking thousands of people. Can you see Jesus moving through those, you know, those mountainous areas, those, those valleys, the ravines, the hills, and thousands of people are following him. Why? They all want to be healed. They all want something from him. Seeing the crowds. The huge crowds. It motivates Jesus to do something. So seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Now that might not seem important either. Now, when we think mountains, you know, don't think the Rockies or the Alps, <laughs> the Himalayas, right? Now this is all a, a mountainous area, but they also, you know, called mountains or mountainous, mountainous areas, just large hills. And even today, if you were to go to Sea of Galilee, go to that area, go to Capernaum, outside of Capernaum at the north, 
the very northern tip of the Sea of Galilee, is historically the place they believe that Jesus gave this sermon. And it's on a hill. It's just a hill. It's a big hill, but it's a hill. And from that hill, there's a, 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 a grassy slope that goes all the way down to the Sea of Galilee. And so it's believed that that's where Jesus is, in what is called the mountain. So why is this important? Well, this has historical uh, importance. Up the mountain. Those words, he went up the mountain. Those words are found three times in the Old Testament. And each time, it refers to Moses going up the hill to meet with God. In the entire Bible, the two leading figures are Moses and Jesus. Moses is the leading figure of the Old Testament. Ask any Jew, even today, Moses. Moses was not just a lawgiver. Moses was a deliverer. He was a redeemer of his people. He led them out of Egypt through the wilderness. So Moses is the leading figure of the Old Testament, and Jesus is the leading figure of the New Testament. Now, I know that Jesus is in the Old Testament, but we're talking about people and figures. And so we have the two most important people in the Bible, Moses and Jesus. And now Jesus, as many would say, he's seen as the new Moses. Just as Moses went up the mountain to meet with God, to receive God's word and to give that word to the people. Jesus goes up the mountain, but he's greater than Moses. He is God. And he is going to speak the words of God to the people. And so it's very Moses-like, isn't it? And it reminds us of Moses, and it reminds us of going up the mountain to hear from God. And that's what Jesus is doing. Seeing the crowds. In order to get away from the crowd, he goes up the mountain. And the next thing we see, and when he sat down, again, who cares? He sat down. He's tired or something like that, right? No, I understand that, that this is, from my study, this is an idiom. It's a way of saying something. It's a figure of speech that means something more than you see in the words itself. He sat down. In that context, in that day, that was the posture of the teacher. From the synagogue to the university to the public square, the teacher sat down. His pupils, his students gathered around his feet, as it were, either standing or even sitting on the ground in front of him. And so Jesus goes up the mountain and takes the posture of a teacher. They recognized that. They knew that. He didn't just go up there and start talking. <laughs> Remember in the synagogue, what did they do? They read the scripture and then they sat down and opened up the teaching to them. This is what they were familiar with. This is what they did. And so Jesus goes up the mountain and Matthew tells us he sat down. He's taken the position of a leader. And something that's very important 
And I think this might be the key to understanding the Beatitudes. His disciples came to him. Seeing the crowd, he went up the mountain to give them God's word, and his disciples came to him. Who came to him? Matthew says his disciples did. Jesus' intention here is to teach his disciples. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. The Sermon on the Mount is not an evangelistic sermon. It's instructive for his disciples. He's teaching his disciples, and to get ahead of myself a little bit here, he's describing to them the characteristics of a disciple. His disciples came to him. Now, we don't, you know, think, of course, that there weren't any you know, unbelievers who came up the mountain with them. But Matthew makes it clear that his disciples, Jesus in, the, in chapter 4 had called several disciples to himself. They become the apostles. But there are other believers. There are others who have trusted in him. And so they too are in the crowd and they come up the mountain to meet with Jesus. He sits down in front of them to teach his disciples. That's important. Because when we read the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, we have to understand that he is speaking to his disciples. They came to him. And then finally, verse 2, he opened his mouth and taught them. Again, this is an idiom. Why does Matthew even tell us he opened his mouth? Well, of course he opened his mouth, right? He taught them. You have to open your mouth to teach. You have to open your mouth to speak. No, it's more than that. He opened his mouth. And everyone who had an ear to hear strained to hear what he had to say. They were just waiting for him to open his mouth to begin the teaching. Those of us who are older, the young kids probably don't know anything about this, but do you remember the E.F. Hutton commercials? When E.F. Hutton speaks, everybody listens. I remember one of those commercials in a, a busy cafeteria or a restaurant, people talking, you hear the dishes, you, everything's going on. And the person says, well, my broker's E.F. Hutton. And E.F. Hutton said, silence, right? You could hear a pin drop. And when E.F. Hutton opened his mouth, everybody stopped to hear what he had to say. That's the suggestion anyway, right? It's the same thing here. When the teacher sits down, everybody's eyes are focused on the teachers and they're just waiting for him to begin. They're waiting for him to open his mouth. And it, it, this idiom speaks of making a public declaration. He's about to say something really important, and we have to hear it. So these seem like insignificant little statements, and yet everyone is important. And so that gives us the historical context and the, describes the setting for us. So let me say a few things about the Beatitudes. As I said, the, 
the Beatitudes are not evangelistic. It's not how to become a disciple. Jesus is talking to his disciples. He is describing what it means to be a disciple. This is not a formula, a list of things that people have to do to get saved, as it were. But because you are saved, because you are a disciple, because you are a follower of Jesus, Jesus is saying, this is what it's like. The word blessed, you know that it can be translated happy. Sometimes in some Bibles it's translated happy. And the problem with happy, as D.A. Carson, I believe, said it, in today's world it's almost a, an irrelevant word. It doesn't mean much anymore. It just speaks of an emotion. Everybody wants to be happy emotionally. But biblically, the, the word says much more than that. You know that in the Old Testament especially, speaks of God blessing us and of us blessing God, right? Well, they can't mean the same thing. When, you know, the psalmist says, bless the Lord, O my soul, bless the Lord, all that is within me. He means praise the Lord. Magnify the Lord with me. Oh, my soul, magnify the Lord. That's what it means to bless the Lord. But when the Lord blesses us, it speaks, it's very much like grace. It's to receive the favor and approval of God. When God blesses us, he gives us his grace. He gives us his favor. That's what grace is, right? Unmerited favor of God. And so to be blessed by God is to be favored by God. Kent Hughes um, prefers another word. He thinks the whole idea, if you study out being blessed by God in the Old Testament, it, he likes the word approved. You're living a life that is approved by God. That's the blessed life, the approved life. And that may be the, the idea here, maybe a good word for this, to be favored or approved by God. That's what it means to be blessed. It's not just an emotion. Emotions go up and down. Emotions are circumstantial. Whatever's happening, you know, we can either be happy or sad. But when we are blessed by God, favored by God, and our behavior is approved by God, it produces an inward deep joy in the soul. That's not circumstantial. It's to know that you're living a life of fellowship with God, living a life in obedience to His commands. Your life is approved by God. You have God's favor on your life. That's the blessed life. And then after each beatitude, there is a promise. We could call it a reward, or we could call it a promise. Now, there is a promise attached to the characteristic. For instance, the first one in verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit. You may remember 
that speaks of spiritual poverty. One who understands his spiritual poverty, he's a spiritual beggar, because that's where everybody starts. And then there's a reward, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I think the important thing to remember in every one of these promises, where it says theirs is, they shall be, they shall inherit, they shall be satisfied, they shall receive mercy. In each one of those, the word they or theirs is emphatic. Which means, of course, that's what's being emphasized, but it's a way of saying theirs and theirs alone. It's theirs, nobody else's. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not for anyone else. It's for those who begin a spiritual life as beggars. Poverty of spirit. And that leads me to the next thought. And I think this will be the last one. Uh, observation concerning the Beatitudes. Is that many have pointed out, and I think uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, probably uh, popularized this thought more than anyone else. Because it seems like every commentary quotes Martin Lloyd-Jones on this. It's the idea that the Beatitudes have a natural, logical, spiritual progression. They're not just, you know, in random order. There's a natural orderliness to them, and it's a spiritual orderliness. In other words, everyone who is a disciple begins with the first beatitude, poor in spirit, spiritual poverty. We all begin there knowing that we have nothing to give to God. We're empty. What does that lead to? It leads to those who mourn over their sin. Sinfulness, even though our sins have been forgiven, we still mourn and grieve over our sinfulness. For they and they alone shall be comforted. And for those who are you know, poor in spirit and moan over the sin, it leads them to this. Blessed are the meek, the gentle, the humble, the lowly, because they know what it is to be poor in spirit. They've owned their sinfulness, and it leads them to this attitude of meekness. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Knowing their spiritual poverty, what do they want? What do we want more than anything is to live lives of righteousness, of personal holiness and godliness. We hunger and thirst after that, don't we? And then, what does that lead to? Now, at this point, there's a change in the Beatitudes. The first four, like the first four of the Ten Commandments, are primarily, primarily deal with our relationship to God. From this point on, they deal primarily with our relationship with others. Now, there's overlap, of course. But now you can see, blessed are the merciful. Well, they've received mercy. They understand what it is to receive mercy. So what do they do? They're merciful to others. And they shall receive mercy. And it leads us to this one. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. And blessed are those who are persecuted. And so there's a, a shift here in the Beatitudes.
And there is this natural spiritual order or progression in the Beatitudes. And so now we come to the Beatitude that we're looking at this morning. In verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I want to read, it's just two sentences. This is how Martin Lloyd-Jones begins this section in his book, which was you know, a collection of sermons that were published. He begins his thoughts on this beatitude. This is right out of the box. He says this. We come now to what is undoubtedly one of the greatest utterances to be found anywhere in the whole realm of Holy Scripture. Anyone who realizes even something of the meaning of these words, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, can approach them only with a sense of awe and of complete inadequacy. In other words, this is powerful stuff. There's a lot here. This, this is something that you really need to think about. And in his estimation, there's, this is right up there with anything found in the Holy Scriptures. Well, what is it? Blessed, favored, graced, approved, happy, joyful are the pure in heart. So what does it mean to be pure in heart? That's the question, isn't it? What does it mean to be pure in heart? Well, first of all, let me just say something about the heart. Where do, Proverbs tells us where to keep our heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. The heart speaks of the whole person, doesn't it? It's not talking about that organ that's beating inside of your chest. It's the whole person. Your mind, your emotions, your will, everything about you is included in that word, the heart. And we have to be diligent over our hearts, over our inner person, because Everything comes out of our hearts. Everything, every issue of life, the Scripture says, flows out of the heart. You've heard it said, and it's, it's been repeated so many times, I almost hate to say it. The problem of the heart is the heart of the problem. Right? That's the heart of the problem. It's the heart. Why do we have so many problems in the world today? It's the heart. It's the inner man. It's the inner person who is estranged from God. And that's where the real issues of life are. And so, blessed are the pure in heart. What does this speak of? Well, there are a couple of things, and it may be a combination of both. Uh, it can be taken in a sense of um, holiness godliness, to live a righteous life. The problem that I have with that is Jesus already covered that. You know, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, which is to be taken to mean holiness, personal righteousness, personal holiness, personal godliness. 
Here, I think, and most people uh, would agree with this, that Jesus is not talking about our personal holiness, uh, per se. But the word pure in the scriptures often speaks of that which is unmixed. That which is genuine, that which is sincere, honest, authentic. Let me show you a couple of passages, and we'll do this very quickly. In Psalm 24, the psalm that we read earlier, and we'll just do a glancing, you know, uh, blow at this, just kind of glance at it very quickly. We read in 24, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, and now as if to explain what that means, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He's a person who hates what is false and loves what is true. And he hates what is deceitful. Why? It, that's to be a hypocrite. You know, outwardly you say one thing, but inwardly you're full of deceit. And so the one who is pure of heart, his hands, which speak of his, his activities, he has clean hands and a pure heart, a pure mind, a pure soul, who doesn't lift up his hands, who does not direct them to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. And then, almost like, the beatitude, he says, and he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation and such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. See, that helps us also. It helps describe what it means to be pure of heart. There are those who seek the face of God. They are intentional about it. They have one face, as it were. They have one motivation. They're going in one direction. They're seeking the face of God. And along the way, they will not lift their hand to do anything unclean. They hate what is false. And they hate what is deceitful. They're intentional and purposeful. They're moving toward God. That's what they seek. They seek the face of God. And then very quickly, if we just turn over to Psalm 73, I did preach from this psalm maybe a few months ago. In Psalm 73, verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so the statement is, truly, surely, certainly, God is good to Israel, isn't he? What do I mean by that? Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, we won't look at it, but in this psalm, this is a, a psalm of Asaph. Asaph has a crisis of faith. Asaph almost gives up faith in God. And he tells us why. He said, because I started to look at the wicked. 
And I, I saw that they were prosperous. I saw that they had all the things that I don't have. They avoided all the bad things that I have. And this didn't seem right to me. This didn't seem just. This didn't seem fair. And so Asaph had, as it were, one eye on God and one eye on the world. And he was standing there in a moment of crisis. Where do I go? And you remember how it's resolved? He takes the long view. He said, when I came into the house of God, I came to my senses. And there he remembered that in the end, the righteous will be rewarded and the unrighteous will be judged. And what did it do? It helped him get his focus back on God. It helped him become single-minded again. It helped him to give himself entirely consecrated back to God. Because when the vision was split, he had a problem. And when he came back to focus on God, the problem was resolved. Turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. And I'll begin reading in verse 1, just so that we can get the, the context, see the whole picture here. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this, that you passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world, you see where he's going with this? Friendship with the world. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore. Now, humble and submit come from the same a root Greek word. To humble yourself is to submit yourself. To submit yourself is to humble yourself. So he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. I mean, it's as if he's telling us what he means. Purify your hearts, you double-minded people. Friendship with the world and friendship with God, you can't have both. You will love and pursue and seek and follow the one, and you will askew and hate the other. You can't have it both ways. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves, therefore before the Lord, and he will exalt you. 
I think we have this idea very plainly right here. To purify your soul is to give yourself entirely to the Lord. Submit yourselves to Him. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Seek His face. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. If that's your passion, if that's your goal, if that's you know everything is wrapped up in this, drawing near to God, seeking His face, God will reveal Himself to you. He will draw near to you. But if you're pursuing God and friendship with the world, that doesn't work. It's to be double-minded. You know, have eyes on this and an eye on that. It doesn't work. To have a pure heart is to have an unmixed heart. To be single-minded. To be totally devoted, totally consecrated to the Lord. That's the pure life. Blessed are the pure in heart. Sincere, authentic, genuine, unmixed, devoted, consecrated. All of these words help us to describe what it means to have a pure heart. Pure and unmixed. Sincere. Remember when Jesus saw Nathaniel? Do you remember what he said? You know, in all of Israel, there's no one like this. He is a man of no guile. There's no deceitfulness in him. He was pure, genuine. I mean, he's the authentic thing. He's the right thing. Totally consecrated to the Lord. And so, briefly, what, what have we discovered then it's that blessed are the pure in heart blessed are those who in their hearts are totally consecrated to the lord who seek his face like the psalmist said who are not double-minded like james said but they're totally committed to following the lord like the song we sang be thou my vision o lord of my heart everything else it doesn't matter or like the other song, just let me see Jesus. In the morning, at night, in life and in death, just let me see Jesus. And we have our eyes fixed on the author and finisher of the faith. To be like him. Who in his own earthly life, he said, I didn't come here to do my will. I came here to do the will of the Father. I mean, that's what this is. Totally committed to do the will of the Father. And striving, working toward that. And I, I, I want to caution you here. He's not, this is not a legalism. This is not how you become a disciple. He's saying, these are the characteristics of my disciples. And so I can say, I know that in each one of you who are people of faith, this is already true. The problem is, that we still live in a body of sin. We will never in this life completely live up to these standards. And yet, it's in our hearts. Don't you desire this? Take all of the Beatitudes. You desire them all. You desire to live a life that is pure, wholly consecrated to the Lord. And in many ways, you are. 
but we will never live it completely now. And so we're always striving, always you know, reaching, always drawing near to the Lord, doing whatever we can to be closer to the Lord. Blessed are the pure in heart. And then we have the promise. For they shall see God. And what does that mean? They shall see God. Well, it probably means several things. And I think there's one main idea. But some who have gone before me, like John Piper and Derek Thomas and even Martin Lloyd-Jones, have identified several ways that the pure in heart see God. And I think the first and most important thing here is that one day we will see God. Right now, do we see God? No. And Jesus, you know, Peter said, do you see him? No. Do you love him? Yes. And even though you haven't seen him, you love him and obey him. But you haven't seen him face to face. But the Apostle John writes in 1 John that right now, you know, it's a great thing. We see the love of God and that we're called the children of God. But one day, what will happen? We will see him face to face. And we will be changed. We will be transformed. We will receive our glorified bodies. And all of the intentions of our heart will all be purified. Completely and fully when we see him. We have that promise that we will see God. Who will? They and they alone. The pure in heart. They and they alone will see God. There are a couple of other ways that we can see God. And, and I, you know, Jesus isn't talking about some kind of, you know, spiritual, mystical thing where, oh, we see a vision of God. That's not what he's talking about. We will see God, literally, face to face. But there are a couple of other ways in which we see God. We see God in creation. We see the glory of God, don't we? You remember Moses? He he wanted to see the the glory of God, and he put him in the cleft of the rock, and he he had his attributes, right? went before him, and he saw the glory of God. Remember Job. At the end of Job, you know, he, full of a little bit of hubris and says some foolish things, and the Lord says basically, stand back and let me say something. And he says, Job, where were you when I did this? Over and over again, right? Job, who do you think you are? And then Job at the end says, you know, I've heard of you with my ear, but now I see you with my eye. What did he see? The glory of the Lord. And in seeing the glory of God, he saw God. So those are a couple of ways in which we see God. And then there's another one. This is the last one. And both of these men that I mentioned earlier uh, mentioned this. 
that we see God when we are comforted by His grace. Now, where do they get that? There's a couple of passages. One we won't look at, Psalm 27. But I would just remind you of what is called the ironic blessing. Blessing, And this is in number six. Not, not the ironic blessing, but the ironic blessing. The blessing that God gives Moses to give to Aaron and his sons, the priests, who then are to pronounce this blessing upon Israel. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. There is a connection between those two thoughts. May the Lord's face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May you experience and know the grace of God as His face shines upon you. Now, that's figurative language, isn't it? Just as a man stands outside in the sun, he puts his face to the sun, he feels the sun. The sun is shining upon his face. And so may the face of God shine upon you. May you know his presence and know his grace. Because when you experience his grace, you experience his presence and you see God in that grace. When you think of the grace of God, don't you see God? Because it's all of God. It all points to God. And so may He shine His face upon you and be gracious to you. And so there are other things that can be said, and I'll say a few more things tonight. Maybe you have some questions or comments, some of your own observations maybe this evening before we get into the to the lesson in Ezekiel. But just to, to bring it all to a conclusion. These are the characteristics of a disciple. Not perfectly. But I know within you, if you're a child of God, you are in some measure living out each and every one of these Beatitudes. And I know that it is your desire as a child of God to live a pure life, a life wholly consecrated, wholly devoted, unmixed, not in love with the world or the things of the world, because those things are not from the Father, John says. But we want the things of God. Isn't that true of you? Not perfectly because we never will reach them perfectly in this life. But in you, in your soul, there is a desire to live a life totally devoted to the Lord. And may God, by His grace, grant us that more and more as we're transformed into the image of Jesus Christ to live a pure life. Amen. Father, we thank You for your word, we thank you for this lesson from Jesus.
the longest sermon recorded in the Bible, the longest discourse recorded by Jesus. And he begins by saying, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who are hungering, thirsting after righteousness, and those who are pure in heart. May you grant us more devotion, more consecration, more desire to be drawn near to you, to see your face, both now and forever. In Jesus' name, amen.